Hey there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that takes complex theological ideas and breaks them down into points of simply understanding. I am your host, Pastor Vinny. And I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you, when life throws a monkey wrench at your head, Jesus is still the Logos, the logic, the reason, the word that builds your faith all the way back to the kingdom of God. Hey there, true believer, and welcome back to another podcast of Simply Devotion. I am very excited about today's podcast, True Believers, because guess what? It is story time, and I love biblical stories. We're going to deep dive into a biblical story and look at what we can pull out of the narrative of this story to enhance our spiritual development and growth and faith in Jesus. Now, this story is unlike any other story. It is a story in its own league. And to do it true justice, we're going to go back all the way back to two people in the Bible that you probably really rarely hear mentioned. And they are Malion and Kilion. They're brothers, by the way, Malion and Kilion, and they are from Bethlehem. Now, the best I can tell you, scholars would agree that Bethlehem likely means house of bread or house of plenty, which provides a lot of great irony for this story because Malion and Kilion leave with their parents to go to the land of Moab. Why? Here's the irony. The house of bread. The house of bread is in a famine. And so they leave the house of plenty because of a famine. Irony. Dun, 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 dun. And they have to go to the land of Moab. Now, the land of Moab is on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's like these Bethlehem and Moab, they're on opposite sides of the Dead Sea. We, we might say that Bethlehem traditionally is kind of like the right side of the Dead Sea. And... Moab may be considered the wrong side of the Dead Sea. Kind of like, you know, you might say the wrong side and the right side of the tracks. Well, Moab has a history. Like, And if we want to know the history of Moab, like we have to deep dive all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis, we remember a story about Abraham getting up in the middle of the night and leaving his ancestors and taking his nephew Lot, and they journeyed to the land of promise. Now, at some point in this story, Abraham and Lot, they, their herdsmen mostly had in a disagreement. And so Abraham said, listen, Lot, I don't want there to be bad blood between us. You pick one direction, I'll pick the other direction. And so we have Lot picking the land of Moab. Now, I don't want to get into too much of the sensitive information here, but what I am sharing with you is the biblical record. In Genesis, now chapter 19, we find a history of Moab. 
The history of Moab is the history of Lot and the history of Lot's daughters. Which is why some scholars have theorized that the word Moab may actually mean the seed of a father. You see, there's a story in Genesis 19 verses 30 through 38 that is uncomfortable. It's awkward. And it definitely paints the picture as to why Moab has a bad reputation amongst God's people. Going to Genesis 19, I'll pick it up in 31 and just quickly give you a recap of this story. It says, one day the older daughter said to the younger daughter, our father is old. There is no man around to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let us get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family lineage through our father. In that night, in 33, it says, that's what they did. I don't want to spend too much time on this story, but it is the backdrop to Moab. So on one hand, we have this place, Bethlehem, the house of plenty. And on the other side of the Dead Sea, we have Moab, the place of kind of like a bad reputation. And so Malon and Kilion, along with their parents, have to go from the house of plenty because of a famine and go into the land of Moab. So this is like embarrassing. This is like awkward. This is like a, a whole social caste system change. You may have guessed it by now, but... Uh, Kilion and Nalon's parents are Elimelech and Naomi. And while these two brothers are in Moab, they take each one a wife, Ruth and Orpah. Now the narrative advances with Elimelech and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, suddenly dying, neither having had any children of their own. This is kind of an important point because in Semitic cultures in the Near East, uh, both sides of the Dead Sea, either in Bethlehem or Moab, property is passed through men and in a patriarchal um, hierarchy. And so without men, you cannot pass property or even be really engaged in an economic commercial system. Neither myself or the biblical narrative is suggesting that that's right and it should be that way. It just simply was. And so without any children, Ruth or Orpah had no one to take care of them and no security into the future. The same was true for Naomi. Both of her boys had died as well. And so they were in this sort of pickle together. Naomi decides that at least she owns lineage to property in Bethlehem. She can live in it even if she can't leverage it. And she could beg for food. So she decides that she's going to leave Moab and go back to the house of bread, Bethlehem, and make that journey back. But she tells Ruth and Orpah 
don't follow me. Don't come with me because I have no more children, no more sons to give you. And I don't know if anyone would marry you back there being that, you know, you're kind of from the wrong side of the Dead Sea. Listen, you're young, you're attractive, you have a bright future ahead of you. Go back to your parents, find a new spouse, have some children. You have my blessing. Don't feel obligated to me. Now, fans of the Book of Ruth knows where this story goes. And, you know, so Orpah does that because Naomi has given her her blessing to do so. But Ruth you know, goes through this whole sort of emotional speech that often we put a big spotlight on. And this is where we cue the music and we get the nice sound effects. And it's like this really warm, emotional moment. And I'm not making light of it. It really is. Her speech is moving. It goes like this. Entreat me not to leave you, nor to turn back from following after you. Where you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you from me. And so I get it, and I get why we're all about that quote. It's so emotional. It's so, it just speaks of, like, lessons of loyalty, right? And it's a really important moment. It's just not the point of this podcast. But the point would be that Ruth goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem to the house of bread. Naomi is bitter, and you can't blame her. She's going back to the house of bread where she has no bread. She has no husbands. She has no sons. She's just got this independent now, Ruth, who she's also got to beg for and take care of. Well, Thankfully, in the Torah, Moses provided some guidance to have some social justice mechanisms in place in Israel for those who experience situational poverty. And this system is called gleaning. Gleaning. You could go glean. Now, basically, this just meant you could go to the field where the farmers were harvesting and you could pick up the scraps that they left behind. Now, Moses had instructed the Israelites that when they harvested, that God would be well pleased if they left enough behind for the poor. And so Ruth makes her way out to a field, but this field is owned by a man named Boaz. Now, this is also an important key point to the story because Boaz is actually a distant relative of Elimelech, that is, Naomi's husband. He is in the heritage of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. The Bible also says that Boaz was a man of great wealth. 
And so Naomi sends her to that field to go ahead and glean. And as she goes to that field and she goes ahead and gleans, it turns out that Boaz notices her. Now, when I say Boaz notices her, I mean Boaz notices her. It's like, you know what I mean, you know? Ruth is like, good sir, may I glean from your field? And he is like, listen, you may glean from my field anytime you want. In fact, don't even set your eyes on another field. When you, it's, when you want to glean, you just come to my field. And he's like, takes us even further and he's like, you're going to be safe at my field. I have told my gentlemen workers, don't lay a hand on her. Don't even think about it. Don't even look at her that way. And if you get thirsty while you are out here gleaning on my field, we have a vessel for you to drink from. And so she's like, wow, what's up with this? And she's like, why? Why have I found such favor in your eyes? Why, why have you noticed me? I am not even a Jew. But Boaz is like, I know of your honor. I have heard of your honor. To put it in the vernacular, if you will allow me, Boaz is like, there is nothing more attractive. There is nothing more desirable if you will permit me to say so. In the vernacular, Boaz is saying, there's nothing more sexy than a woman who has honor. A woman who does what's right. A woman who takes care of her mother-in-law when she could have ran away and had her own life. You are out here begging in the field to honor your mother-in-law. How could I not find that appealing? And just like that, the romance is on. Boaz goes to his workers. He's like, you, you, you see that lady over there? Yeah, the one I told you not to touch? Yeah, yeah. This is what I want you to do. Like, when you're collecting the barley, don't be so careful. Don't scoop it all up. Like, I know we leave a little bit behind for the gleaners, but Leave a lot behind for this cleaner. Just like drop extra there for her to get. Make it really easy for her to get what she needs to feed her mother-in-law and herself. And so they do. And time progresses. And Boaz is like, come, eat some bread with me. Dip it in vinegar with me. Here, take some barley home to your mother-in-law. Now, soon, Naomi's like wondering, where is this all this extra barley coming from and and where is this food that you just keep bringing home this is obviously not just food from the gleaning and so Ruth tells Naomi that there's this guy Boaz and I basically think he has a crush on me and he keeps giving me all this favor at the field for us fellow true believers we must realize that Ruth, at this point, she's not done anything unhonorable. She is not trying to use her feminine appeals to get something from Boaz. Boaz has noticed her. 
and Boaz has treated her with respect and Boaz has made all of his employees treat her with respect. But Boaz, you know, probably doesn't think he has much of a chance with a young woman like Ruth. But when Naomi hears that it's Boaz who's interested in her, Naomi knows something that we didn't know until this point in the story, and that is that Boaz is what's known in Israel as a kinsman redeemer. Let me say that again. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Now, let me explain this terminology to you. This is a Hebrew custom, a tradition that has its origin in Torah. But basically, to back up a little bit, remember when I was explaining to you that women didn't really have full property rights and they couldn't transfer property, you know, down the family lineage and they couldn't really be engaged in the marketplace in the same way men could because of the transfer of property. Well, there was a custom, you know, that if someone in your family lineage fell into slavery, you had the obligation to buy them back up out of slavery. This is based on what Moses taught in Leviticus 25, basically around verses 47 to 55, this idea that you could redeem your brother's property and that you had the obligation to buy your brother out of slavery. This, of course, is further complicated if it's not your brother who's in slavery or your relative, your male relative in slavery, but rather your brother's wife or your relative's wife who is in slavery because of your brother or relative's death. Then we would have to further look in the Torah and maybe we might notice Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 through 6, which implies it is the relative's responsibility to marry the widow and to do so to keep the family lineage and name for the purpose of transferring of property in succession. Now, all of this may sound troubling to our modern mindset and our feminist points of view. And that's good that it does because we are believers in equality and justice because of the New Testament's demand for the equality of men and women. There is no longer male nor female, Jew or Greek, but all are one in Christ. Still, this was the custom of the Semitic culture at this time. So women could not own property or transfer property without it being tied to a male because property had been divided when they went into the promised land amongst tribes. And there had to be a way to track if property was staying in its correct family lineage. Now, we have a situation where Naomi owns property but can't do anything with it because her family lineage has come to an end. And we have this independent relationship forming between Ruth and Boaz. And it turns out that he would be a kinsman redeemer. He would be in the lineage of which he could both redeem the property and Ruth because Ruth is now in Naomi's 
family because Ruth had married Naomi's son. It is Naomi who puts this all together, and she tells Ruth to go to Boaz. In fact, she says tonight, when he is on the barley floor, go to him, wash, put on perfume, dress in your best clothes, go down to the floor, and wait until he's finished eating, and lie down beside him, and uncover his feet. And he will tell you what to do. Now, for any ladies listening to this podcast, if you are looking to get that special man to finally propose to you, I don't recommend this approach. It could be that modern men may not have the moral aptitude of Boaz. As to what this tradition was of laying down at a man's feet, there is not really a good scholarly consensus. There are some conflicting ideas even among rabbinical thinking and rabbinical literature. It appears that some rabbi believed that this was a euphemism for other activity that really doesn't seem to fit the narrative of this story. There are some traditions that suggest that this is simply a sign of submission. Others suggest that it may be a Middle Eastern marriage proposal. Honestly, I don't know what to tell you as to definitively how you should understand this custom, but I would ask the question, does it really matter that we understand this particular custom? Because what does become clear is how Boaz conducts himself when he finds her at his feet and what he sees this to mean. In Ruth chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, Now it happened at midnight, the man was startled, and he turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. This is Ruth. And he said to her, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for I am your close relative, implying that he is the kinsman redeemer. Boaz immediately knows what she means. He doesn't take this as an opportunity to take advantage of her or be immoral with her. He sees right away that she is offering herself for marriage, and he knows how to conduct himself. This is why I said this is not a good way to get a proposal, because not every man would be this moral. Boaz gets it right away in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, Blessed are you, my daughter, for you have shown kindness to me. He basically goes on to say, You're so attractive. You're so young. You're so beautiful. You could have had any man, but realizing that I am your redeemer, you offered yourself to me. And because you have done that, I am going to show honor to you. I am not going to embarrass you. Whatever this custom is of uncovering feet in the middle of the night, why we don't know. Boaz does understand the implications of a young woman coming into an older man's room and laying down beside him, even at the foot of the bed. 
and he doesn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about what is going on here. Because you know what happened to women who were considered to be immoral in the Bible. The narrative of the text is clear that she laid at his feet until morning. You find that in verse 14. If this had been a euphemism for something else, she probably wouldn't have stayed at the foot of the bed. We can also be assured that the behavior remained moral because the act of sexual intimacy in Hebrew culture would have implied either prostitution or marriage. And so Boaz informs her, I cannot yet marry you because although I am a close relative, I am not the closest. There is another. Now stop and think about that. If he just wanted to take advantage of her and treat her like a prostitute, then why would he tell her that there's another male in the family line that's entitled to her? Why would he then go to that male and make her and her property known to that male? No, this would not fit the narrative. He would not have done such a thing, for he would have then been exposed. Why did he sneak her out to protect her honor? Why was he concerned about informing her of another relative that could redeem her? All of these point to the picture that the narrative is telling that Ruth laid at his feet until the morning. Not in a euphemism way, but in a literal laying at the foot of the bed. Yeah, maybe you think I'm a prude. Maybe you think I am reading into the narrative. But again, I would point out if this next closest relative had married Ruth and had Ruth told her new husband, that Boaz had violated her that night. This would be a very serious charge in Israel. This would have been both seen as thievery because Ruth did not belong to Boaz, but to this next closest relative. And it would be seen as idolatry idolatry and thievery of particularly a family member would have held the highest penalties imaginable. Therefore, it would seem unlikely that anything nefarious happened during the night simply because Boaz does in the morning do the honorable thing, which is his tendency in this story, despite his desires, despite his wants, he continually acts honorably even when he has opportunity to not do so. And so in the morning, we find Boaz approaching this relative and he is like, hey, I need you to know that Naomi is back and she owns property that is in your family lineage and that you could collect that property by redeeming her. And this particular relative is all about that. He's like, I will buy it. I will redeem it. But then Boaz is like, hmm, on that day, though, that you buy the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabite. 
the wife of the dead perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Again, going back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus in the Torah. Immediately, this man is like, I can't marry Ruth the Moabite. That would destroy my own inheritance. That would destroy my reputation. Basically, this guy is like, ew, a Moabite? No, not for me. Again, Moab was the wrong side of the Dead Sea. And he did not want to sully himself with that reputation. So Boaz is like to the leaders around the gate where they are talking. You have seen this and you have seen that he has forfeited his right to redeem the property and now that it and now I may redeem the property. And so it says in chapter 4 verse 7, now it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to another. This was a confirmation in Israel. And so we have this really like awkward moment in the middle of chapter four about them trading sandals. What's this all about? Again, we find that there are a number of scholarly thoughts about this. Some suggest that this may have been an Arab uh, tradition of a legal witnessing of a divorce. Therefore, the other relative is divorcing his right to have Ruth. I'm not sure about that, to be honest. Other scholars go on to suggest the Hebrew root word for sandal may be linked to the word lot, and in which case they might point to Song of Solomon in verse ch chapter 4, verse 12, which makes a metaphor of the union, a garden locked in my sister, my bride, a garden, a rock locked, is spring up and sealed, seems to be a euphemism for the marriage bed. And so some scholars would say this is a connection to the Deuteronomy 25 uh, and 5 and 6 verse where you are responsible to marry the next closest person. And now he is locked into this commitment with the trading of the sandal. Again, there may not be clear scholarly consent on this, but one of the things we will learn is as we study the text itself, it kind of always, almost always anyways, gives us a very good indication of what things mean. And so we would appeal to Ruth 4 verse 7 itself for the answer. Now this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. What did it say? In former times in Israel. The author of the book of Ruth seems to be implying that the readers of the book of Ruth may be unfamiliar with this custom because whatever it meant, it wasn't even being practiced anymore at the time of which people read the book of Ruth. So they had to explain it themselves. It appears that whatever its full meaning was, it was a custom no longer in practice, but a custom that sealed the commitment to marriage. 
And so we find Boaz then marries Ruth. This is where it gets a little bit interesting because Ruth 4 verse 13 says, Now Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. That was the English standard version. What does it mean that he went into her? It means he went into her room and was intimate with her. The NIV makes it even more clear. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The Brian Study Bible says when he had relations with her. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says when he slept with her, the Lord granted her conception, and she gave birth. The New English translation, the Net Bible, does not mince words. It says, so Boaz married Ruth and had sexual relations with her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The point would be, this is the time that he took her to be his wife, And this is the time that he was intimate with her, which kind of nullifies what some people would like to make into the uncovering of the feet. Why would the author of Ruth use a euphemism at the threshing floor, but be very clear that he took her, which is a Hebrew expression for being intimate with at the marriage. It would seem that if euphemisms are going to be used, you would use a consistent euphemism in both incidents if both were the same activity. Nonetheless, that is really not the point, nor is it the point of the whole purpose of this podcast. Believe it or not, this has all been backstory to the point that we're heading towards still. And that point would be that this child was named Obed. Now, when we look at the genealogy, here's what we find. This then is the family of Piraz. Piraz was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of... Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nashron, and Nashron was the father of Salam, and Salam was the father of Boaz, and Boaz was the father of, going full circle now, Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David. Yes, that David, yes, King David, the epic King David, the greatest king of the Old Testament, the royalty of the Jews, his great-great-grandmother is from the wrong side of the Dead Sea. She is a Moabite. 
what we often see as a great romantic story full of moving and heartfelt narratives, and it is. When we hear Ruth say, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. We are moved. When we see this budding romance between Boaz and Ruth, we are moved. When we see Boaz put everything on the line to be honorable and to admit to the next of kin that there is someone that they could redeem, risking losing everything he wants, we see a man of honor. But often we read this story and we miss that this is a story of inclusion. This is a story of unity. This is a story that teaches us that God, in even building his most royal family of the Old Testament, is willing to include a Moabite. A Moabite that has a family history from the wrong side of the Dead Sea that goes all the way back to a problematic story in Genesis 19. It is to tell us that no one is beyond God's ability. Your past does not matter. Who your family was does not matter. Your ethnicity does not matter. What matters is your character. What matters is your heart. And when those things are right, God will weave you in to his promises and inheritances. But, true believers, the story does not end there. For Matthew, the gospel writer, in Matthew chapter 1, and verse 1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brother. Judah, the father of Piraz and Zerah, whose mother was Tamerah. Piraz, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashan. Nashan, the father of Salam. Salam, the father of, full circle again, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab? Did I read that right? Let me go back. Matthew 1. Verse 5, Salam was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz's mother was Rahab? Rahab the harlot? Rahab the most famous 
prostitute in the Old Testament? Rahab the prostitute from Jericho? Now we see it. Now we see why Boaz treats Ruth with such honor. Now we see why Boaz does not take advantage of Ruth's vulnerabilities. Now we see why Boaz does not just take the opportunity to defile Ruth when she shows up in his room. Boaz, who is a man of great wealth, whose father is Solomon, whose mother is Rahab, the former prostitute who came out of Jericho with the spies. He, unlike the other kinsman redeemer, has no shame in taking a Moabite, for his father took a woman from Jericho with an immoral past at that. You see, the point is being made repeatedly. God is about inclusion. God does not judge us by our past. Just as Solomon did not judge Rahab by her past, but by who God had made her into. Boaz does not judge Ruth for being a Moabite from the wrong side of the Dead Sea. But the story is not over yet. Matthew 1, 5, Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, whose father was Jesse. Jesse, whose father was David. David, whose father was Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rebon. Rebon, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Johoran, Johoran, the father of Huzziah, Huzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jokaniah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jokaniah was the father of Shatiel, and Shatiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Ilihud, and Ilihud the father of 
Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. Thus, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This has been the long run around to tell you that God the Father is not ashamed of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, even when he has a Moabite and a prostitute from Jericho in his royal lineage. God excludes no one in Jesus. We are all but broken pieces of stained glass that make up the beautiful image of Jesus. Jesus collects up broken pieces and puts broken, colorful pieces next to other pieces and creates a beautiful image that is called the Church of Christ. You have been listening to Simply Devotion and Jesus because of his great love, because of his great inclusion of all, because he has no shame in where anyone comes from, is worthy to be our devotion. Whatever your past, whatever your backstory, wherever you come, no matter who your family is, no matter what your heritage is, No matter how great your past sins, today, if you be willing, you belong to the broken pieces of colorful glass that makes up the image of the body of Christ as Jesus brings us all together and redeems us for his own glory. You have been listening to a podcast by Pastor Vinny McIsaac from simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, check out our blogs, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, all that kind of jazzy promotional stuff. But most important, let's keep growing together in Jesus Christ all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. See you at the next podcast. God bless.